This month's podcast, I'm talking to my go-to guy for anything to do with vitamin D. For more years or decades than I care to remember, Dr. William Grant has been the ultimate vitamin D ferret, squirreling away all the studies, digging deeply into the mechanisms and working closely with the Grassroots Health Initiative, which we'll talk about, and is the main informant for the ultimate digital resource, um, vitamindwiki.com. William Grant is the founder and director of Sunlight Nutrition and Health Research Center in San Francisco. This is a nonprofit organization devoted to research and education regarding diet, UVB exposure, and vitamin D for reducing risk of chronic and infectious diseases. The website, which we will put up uh, on the link for this, is www.sunarc.org. So, um, hi, Bill. It's February, uh, which is the usual peak of flu seasons, coinciding with the lowest point for blood vitamin D levels, as most of us have had three months with virtually uh, uh, insufficient strong sunlight to make vitamin D. Is that correct? Is February the worst point in the winter for vitamin D? Uh, yeah, February, yeah, February, early March. It's, it's, it lags the, um, peak, the, the minimum UVB by two or three months because uh, there's still some residual uh, vitamin D. So this is the month that we really need to uh, you know, know what to do. And how long is it that, that you've been working on vitamin D? I started in 1999 when I uh, found the Atlas of Cancer Mortality Rates in the United States, 1970-1994, with um, uh, cancer mortality rates by county United States, showing that there is a very high, a much higher rate in the Northeast than in the Southwest. And um, I got fascinated by that and did an ecological studies showing that UVB doses explain what was happening but I had to build on the work by Cedric and Frank Garland. But anyway, that just um, uh, really got me interested in, in, in going into UVB, vitamin D, and cancer, and everything else. And we've got the, the rays of the sun. There's UVA, which ages the skin, and there's UVB, which also burns the skin. And it's the UVB acting on the skin that makes vitamin D. Just tell us how that works. Okay, so the UVB goes to the lowest layer of the uh, skin where there's a, a, a type of cholesterol called 7-dehydrocholesterol. And UV active, UVB activation um, then makes it a pre-vitamin D. And then there's a, a further a thermal uh, reaction that makes it into vitamin D or cholecalciferol. And it then gets into the bloodstream, goes to the liver where it receives a hydroxyl group, becomes 25-hydroxyvitamin uh, D, which is what is measured when you have your blood drawn for your, your, your vitamin D level. And then it goes from there to the kidneys and other organs, gets a second hydroxyl group, and becomes 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which is the hormonal or active form of vitamin D, uh, which acts through um, vitamin D receptors, coupled to genes to change gene expression. But it also, vitamin D also has calcimic uh, effects. So anyway, it's a very complex uh, system. I mean, the, the, the production of vitamin D is fairly simple, but you gotta be in the sun uh, or in UVB to, to produce it. So we've got this marriage between sunlight acting on the cholesterol in our skin and how much sunlight do we need and uh, you know, how does that vary if you're black or white or sick or healthy or um, old or young or fat or thin? You know, you know how, are, how are these factors actually affecting our ability to produce vitamin D? Okay, so as Nina Jablonski and George Chaplin have shown in many papers, uh, skin pigmentation has adapted to where people live for hundreds to thousands of years. So in Africa, uh, very, very dark skin is required because the UVB, the UV doses are so high that without the, this eumelanin uh, um, uh, in the skin to protect the, the skin from the UV, you'd have 
a lot of free radicals uh, produced, you'd have uh, skin cancer, you'd have destruction of folate, and it would not be very hospitable to life. But there's enough UVB that it can get through to the uh, cholesterol layer and make vitamin D. Now, as you come, people came out of the, uh, Africa and started migrating, uh, if they didn't, if the skin was too dark, they would, their bones wouldn't form properly, so they couldn't uh, reproduce. The pelvic opening wouldn't be large enough. They would get infectious diseases, uh, maybe tuberculosis. And so those who had paler skin uh, through genetic mutation were the ones that survived, and eventually the skin became uh, much lighter. Uh, you had the reverse thing happening from uh, Indonesia to Australia. The Aborigines who came from a forested area where were brown skin, but when they got to Australia with no shade, they had to become very dark skinned. So, um, the, if you look at African pastoral people um, out tending their flocks uh, in the sun all day, clothed, but, but in the sun all day, they're, they're 20, they're, their vitamin D levels around 100 to 125 uh, nanomoles per liter. Uh, so, that is what we think is probably the natural uh, vitamin D level that we ought to be shooting for, at least one, one, one uh, way of thinking about it. Now, um, it turns out, it's very interesting that if you go from the Middle East up through the Nordic countries, uh, in winter you actually have higher vitamin D levels in the Nordic countries than you do in the, um, the Middle East or even Southern uh, 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 Europe. That's because in Northern Europe, they not only take supplements, but they eat a lot of food, a lot of animal products that have vitamin D that make up for the lack of sun for, for six, seven, eight months a year. So it turns out that meat uh, has a lot of vitamin D as, as 25 hydroxy vitamin D, as well as some vitamin D. And so the, uh, the study from England shows that the meat eaters actually have more higher vitamin D levels than the fish eaters and they all have much more than the uh, vegans or vegetarians. There's about a 20 nanomoles per liter difference between the meat eaters and the vegans in, 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 in uh, England. So um, now, a study was shown, shown in Boston, Michael Hollick and, and Ann Webb showed that there's six months of a year when you cannot produce vitamin D in Boston. And Boston's around 40, 42 degrees north latitude. So, if what's, what's, uh, what's London, just to give us a point of reference? Probably uh, maybe even up to high of 45 or 50. Mm -hmm. So, worse uh, than Boston. Right. Um, so, the rule of thumb is if your shadow is shorter than you are, you can make vitamin D in the sun. If your shadow is longer than you are, uh, which is what the dermatologists say to when you be, should be in the sun, you really can't make any vitamin D. Uh, see, what happens is, okay, the sky is blue and, and the sunset or clouds are orange. That's because the, uh, the molecules in the atmosphere scatter uh, light uh, inversely proportional to the fourth power wavelength. It was saying that, that short wavelengths scatter much more than long wavelengths. And when you get to the UVB, uh, you have much more scattering than in the blue. And so it just sort of sends the, the energy out back into space and doesn't reach the Earth's surface. So it's normally between about 10 and two during the day in the mid-latitudes when you can make reasonable amount of vitamin D. And generally, um, you wanna have as much skin as you can have exposed 20, 25% if you can, uh, which is arms, face, hands, um, uh, et cetera, without sunscreen. Uh, and that's only going to be useful in the summer. So in the, uh, when it's not the summer, you're really going to have to think about taking vitamin D supplements to um, get your vitamin D levels up where you want them. And I've heard if you've got you know, 25% of your skin exposed, uh, you make all your vitamin D in the first 20 minutes? Um, not sure what it is. Uh, it could be an hour. Uh, mm. It's fairly, fairly fast. Yeah, and then, then what happens is you start destroying uh, uh, some of the vitamin D metabolites. Mm -hmm. So um, 
Uh, I think that's partly from the UVA as well as from UVB. And do you become less efficient at doing this when you're older or if you have more um, you know, body fat, for example, does that inhibit any part of this process? Okay, so Michael Hollick and company showed that um, as people age, they have less of the 70 hydrocholesterol in their skin, so the efficiency is reduced. They set it by a factor of four. I don't think it's quite that high, but, but it, does, it does decrease. Uh, if you're fat, the, pro the thing is you just have a larger volume to, 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 to fill and, and uh, it's a dilution effect. So uh, uh, not so much that the, I mean the fat, the adipose tissue may sequester some of the vitamin D, but I don't think, I think it's more just a smart volume to, to worry about. So if you're young and thin, spend a lot of time outdoors in shorts, and uh, t-shirts it's good and if you're fat black living in norway and vegan uh you're really going to be in vitamin d trouble right and they find that a lot of somalis in northern europe in nordic uh, countries have a lot of very very low vitamin d level and much higher rates of autism and uh, pregnancy problems and, and uh, 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 rickets and, and that sort of thing because they're eating more of their african uh, diet and they're not <laughs> not making vitamin D. So let's look at the whole role of vitamin D. Uh, we know it's terribly important for bone health, but let's look at it in relation to preventing infection and uh, sort of start at the beginning, so to speak. And that is before you have an infection. Obviously, we're all very, very aware of COVID and we'll talk about that. But should we all be supplementing vitamin D right now in February in order to prevent infection? And if so, how much? Uh, we want to get our blood levels up to at least 100 nanomoles per liter. By the way, if you see a doctor in the UK and you are above 50, they say that's okay, um, ideally above 75, uh, but you're saying above 100. How much do we need to supplement to get there in this time of year? Okay, first of all, if you have not been supplementing, uh, you probably want to take 100,000 or 200,000 IU of vitamin D3 uh, just to sort of quickly boost your, 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 your vitamin D level. Once you've done that, then you probably want to take, I would say, 4,000 IU per day. Uh, uh, what is that, 100 microgram? My, yeah, microgram. It's, IUs is fine. We can stick to IUs, no problem. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, like, so I weigh, um, well, I... I take about 5,000 IU per day. I weigh 135 pounds, and my level is around, around 60 nanograms per milliliter, or, mm -hmm. or 150 nanomoles per liter. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's considerable vari variation. Uh, there's a lot of genetic factors that, and, and personal factors that go into uh, absorption of vitamin D through the GI tract, conversion of, of vitamin D to 25-hydroxyvitamin D into 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, um, the, the, uh, how big you are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you're very large, you might want to take 10,000 a day. Uh, there are very few downsides of, of taking five to 10,000 IU per day. In fact, the Institute of Medicine could not find any adverse effects below 10,000 IU per day. Mm -hmm. Um, kidney stones really are not caused by taking vitamin D. They're caused by oxalic acid and not enough water and things like that. There's one caveat about taking uh, a lot of high-dose vitamin D that it will help increase the absorption of calcium from your food and supplements. And without a little bit of help, the calcium might go to the soft tissues like the arteries and lead to arterial stiffening rather than going to the bones. So what you want to do to help prevent that is take vitamin K2 in addition to taking vitamin D. And there's another thing, you also want to take magnesium because in converting between the different metabolites of vitamin D, uh, the enzymes that are used, use, have magnesium in them. And magnesium has a lot of good functions in the body. So like I take about 400 milligrams a day of, of magnesium. I'm taking, a, a, I actually get my vitamin K2 from uh, natokinase. We, I get a bulk supply and just, uh, puts them on a knife blade a few millimeters uh, morning and evening. Uh, what is that, natokinase? Not everyone will that, be... That's fermented uh, soy product. Okay, and that's a source of vitamin K2. So right. what, were you having like a teaspoon of that a day or something? No, no, just um, 
five or ten millimeters, cubic millimeters, uh, morning and evening. What does that look like? Well, it's a brown powder. Uh, yeah. Um, but, 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 but um, you know, that's like, maybe a square centimeter, maybe half of a millimeter thick. Okay. So just a it's little like, bit. It's like, a, like a, like a fingernail, uh, okay. size, um, uh, you know, uh, a tiny little spread of natokinase. I'm actually taking, uh, I supplement 3000 IUs a day uh, in the winter. And uh, in the summer, I, I reduce that down. I've actually got a regular daily supplement, which is giving me um, 800 IUs anyway. Um, and in the summer, I just take an additional 3000 a week. So I'm probably averaging a little bit more than a thousand a day uh, in, the, you know, in, the, in the sort of sunny months and 3,000 a day in the winter months, okay, something like that. Uh, but I was amazed, actually, because before I was doing that, I was just taking uh, about 1,500 IUs, and I spent a month in Kenya with wonderful sunlight, and I assumed that that exposure, being outdoors all the time, plus supplementing, would be enough. And uh, when I got myself tested, I was just under 70 nanomoles per liter. Yeah. And we, you know, we know you certainly want to be over That's 75. Yeah, but you're saying be over 100 is really the place to be. Right. So yeah, one question here, because a lot of people, if they go into a health food store, they'll see supplements of 1,000 IUs. You were saying that, uh, you know, if you haven't necessarily been doing the right thing, the best thing to do is do a super dose of 100,000 or 200,000. Is that a single dose? A single well, you, can do it, you can do it in a week. You can do it in a uh, one day. Um, I mean, if you're going to take a... Uh, 100 pills to do it, that, that's a bit much. Yeah. Uh, we, we can get 5,000 and 10,000 IU in the yeah. grocery stores here in the United States. But other than the practicality, if you could literally take 100,000, you're just as, it's just as good taking it in a single dose just to get your levels up quickly? Yes, yes, there are a number of studies that show that. And does that also mean on a, on a regular basis, when I say I'm taking 3,000 IUs a day, can I just take 21,000 IUs a week? Is that just as effective? Okay, so the half-life of, of, of 25-hydroxyvitamin D is around two and a half weeks. And the general pharmacological point of view is you can take a, a, a substance uh, within, a, say, a half of the half-life. So that means that once a week would be okay in general. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have some variation up and down but what some people are showing, uh, such as Bruce Hollis in South Carolina, if you're um, a, a woman nursing uh, an infant, you've got to take your vitamin D on a daily basis because the infant, the nursing infant, wants to get unprocessed vitamin D, the colocalciferol. Mm -hmm. uh, you can either supplement the, the baby with the infant with vitamin D or go through the mother's um, milk supply. Uh, there may be some other uh, effects that are that are um, controlled by unprocessed vitamin D, and so there is some reason to try to take it on a more a daily basis, like getting it from the sun, than on a weekly basis. But but a lot of studies have have, have shown that, um, uh, for example, for COVID, that, that taking high dose once uh, can give you a fair amount of protection. On the other hand, a lot of the Clinical trials using 100,000 IU uh, once a month have not shown such good effect, uh, results for cancer and other things like that. Mm -hmm. So coming back to the question, here we are. I've not got COVID. It's winter. I'm taking 3,000 IUs. I think you're taking 5,000 IUs a day. Um, is that going to reduce my chances either of getting uh, infected with COVID or a cold or flu? Or will that alone uh, reduce the severity or duration if I do get it? Okay, let's look at the mechanisms first. One of the mechanisms of, of vitamin D is to help the innate immune system uh, protect against any kind of infectious agent. And one way it does that is it induces uh, release of cathocytin and defensins from macrophages in the blood, which can, can uh, kill bacteria and viruses. This is shown in 2006 with respect to tuberculosis. Um, somehow the cathocytin can, can uh, puncture the, the cell wall of, of these viruses and, and uh, bacteria. And so you, you really want to try to 
be on guard against any kind of foreign object like that. See, the adaptive immune system, has a, which is what you get vaccinated for, has a memory of, of what it's looking for. But the innate immune system just has to be on guard for everything. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, if you start to get infected, if you start to, if the immune, if your immune system because it can't overcome the, the influx, the next thing that the vitamin D does is it helps uh, regulate the production of uh, cytokines and chemokines. Now these are chemical messengers sent from cells to other cells and, and they're trying to tell the other cells what to do. Um, there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines. Now, if you get sick and you're, you, you start getting uh, your temperature increasing, I think that's because of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that are causing inflammation and causing a temperature rise. Uh, what we showed uh, in an uh, ecological study in 2009 was that during the pandemic influence in the United States, the, uh, the case fatality rate uh, was much lower in the Southwest than the Northeast United States. Now, what happened was the United States Public Health uh, Agency sent out uh, people to about 12 or 13 communities around the uh, country, and they went door to door knocking and asking people, did anybody in your household get, get uh, influenza? And if so, did they die? And the main cause of death then was pneumonia. Um, and so they, they found, okay, so what we showed was that the correlation between case fatality rates and um, geography was that the Southwest had much higher solar UVB doses in both summer and winter than the Northeast. And what we hypothesized was that vitamin D was reducing the cytokine storm, so it wasn't destroying or affecting the surface lining of the lungs, and, which would then allow the ever-present viruses and bacteria and, and fungi to generate pneumonia. Uh, and in fact, you find that the main, it seems like the main problem with, with um, uh, diseases like COVID and, and, and influenza is that the cytokine storm, it's called a cytokine storm when you get a great abundance of, of these cytokines, they will start adversely affecting the surface linings of the lung, the arteries, the heart, the brain, and so on. And so that's when you're doing a lot of damage to your organs. And if you wait too long to, to take your vitamin D, if you want to think you're getting COVID, uh, you may have irreversible damage. Uh, in fact, a study in Brazil showed if you waited 10 days after uh, the symptoms developed, uh, and, and went to people in the ICU, you had no way of, of helping them with vitamin D. On the other hand, a study in, in, uh, in Spain showed that if they just had pneumonia, you could still benefit them by, by giving them vitamin D. So um, this kind of brings us on to the next phase, which is here you are, you've got an infection. Let's assume it is COVID. Uh, should you be increasing your vitamin D at that point, we know with vitamin C, we talk about having a gram an hour or two grams every two hours or eight grams a day or whatever it happens to be. Should we also be increasing vitamin D from the moment of an infection? Yes. Um, uh, there's some anecdotal evidence from, um, uh, from my colleagues and myself that, that if you get the symptoms of, of uh, respiratory infection in the winter, you do want to take the 100,000 to 200,000 IU right away and then go to a, a daily amount after that. There's also evidence from um, two interesting studies in France called quasi-experimental studies uh, conduct, uh, written up by Cedric Anweiler. And it turns out that in a nursing home with the average age of 88 years, uh, a COVID hit. Now the nursing home had been giving patients 80,000 IU of vitamin D3 every two to three months. And so what they did was they looked at those women, uh, those inhabitants, uh, residents, who had had that, that slug of, uh, that do the bolus dose of vitamin D either a month prior to the outbreak or within a week after the outbreak. And they had a much lower mortality rate um, than those who, who had not had the vitamin D in that period of time. 
They also looked at people who came to a hospital. Again, they were given, the hospital was giving them, I think, 50,000 IU per day for several days. And those who were given those large doses uh, had much lower uh, mortality rate than those who, who were not. So yes, if, if you have any inkling that you're getting COVID-19, you want to start taking high dose vitamin. Now you also, I found out, you want to be taking magnesium as well in order not to um, upset the body and maybe uh, affect the heart rhythm and things like that. So you're doing, you're, you're taking 5,000 a day, I'm taking 3,000 a day. Uh, so what would you do if you got an infection? Well, I thought I would got one, so I, I, I started taking 200,000 IU. Uh, and um, the, the infection lasted four days and um, uh, was pretty much over. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because I'm sure many people listening will know that it's not the virus that's killing people. What happens is if uh, the infection continues, you get a buildup of dead virus particles and the body's immune system reacts against these and it produces the cytokine storm, this incredible inflammatory fire out of control. And Bill, what you're saying is that uh, vitamin D stops that or suppresses that cytokine storm effect. So what about studies that have given people um, vitamin D, for example, when they arrive in the hospital, uh, either in or heading into a cytokine storm, a critical situation for COVID. Okay, so the best example of that is a study from Cordoba, Spain, uh, peer-reviewed publication uh, appeared a couple months ago. It was called a pilot vitamin D study. So what happens, they had uh, 76 patients that had pneumonia and COVID-19 in a hospital they were given the standard treatment, um, uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine and um, uh, an antibiotic uh, for everybody. Then 50 of them uh, were given, no, 50 of them were uh, treated with, with um, it was a, essentially 25 hydroxy vitamin D given 130,000 IU equivalent of vitamin D the first week and continued on until discharge. The others were not, were not treated. And what happened was, of those who were treated, only one went to the ICU and none died. Whereas of those who were not, not treated, 13 went to the ICU and two, who, uh, two died. And so it was a, a very significant effect um, of, of just this, this bolus dose of vitamin D. And that was about 135,000 IUs every week. Is that right? Was that a weekly dose? That, yeah, the second week may have been half that dose. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that is the study that sort of got people paying a little bit more attention, but it's also been criticized. Yes. So what's, what's wrong with that study? Well, one criticism, as I understand it, is they did not randomize the study. They just said they identified those to be given the 20 the vitamin D and didn't give the others. Now, mm -hmm. uh, it could have been that the ones who didn't get the um, uh, vitamin D may have had more comorbid diseases. I haven't looked at it in great detail, but, but um, uh, if you don't randomize uh, the participants, there's always a chance of bias, and, and that's mm -hmm. going to be... Now, this was considered a pilot study, and they're, they're now in the process of, of, of working on a second study with a 1,000 participants. I, they may have had a few hundred enrolled by now. Um, and then, uh, so if we go to the acute stage, so what, what's really being said here is if you do get a COVID infection or any flu or infection, increase your vitamin D dose immediately. Maybe take 100,000 as a single dose to really bump your level up. Um, what about at the sharp end in intensive care units when people are already in the throes of a cytokine storm, they already have uh, you know, reduced oxygenation. Is there any evidence that vitamin D can help in those acute situations? There is a preprint from Brazil showing that they uh, took people who had uh, had symptoms for 10 days, had pneumonia, were in the ICU, had, most of them, 85% or so, had oxygen requirements. Vitamin D did no, did no good whatsoever. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just that you you let it progress too far and, and the body is uh, succumbing to, the, um, mm -hmm. to the, the disease. 
So the critical thing is to, you know, is to get your level high before you get an infection, certainly as soon as you get an infection. And uh, by the way, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the uh, Grassroots Health Initiative, uh, which I know you've been very, very much involved in. And that seems to be like a massive open trial ongoing. So can you tell us how many people are involved in that? How does it work? And uh, what have they managed to show us about uh, you know, risk of infection and, and vitamin D? Okay, so grassrootshealth.net, um, run by Carol Bagley, who calls herself a breast cancer treatment survivor. Uh, she had breast cancer in the early 2000s. And when she found out about vitamin D, she was furious with her medical system for not telling her that vitamin D could have prevented breast cancer. So she, um, uh, she found out about Cedric Garland's work and formed the organization. Um, and um, she realized that, um, in fact, she went around the country, uh, she and her husband drove around the country twice, two summers, meeting all the vitamin D researchers they could find, asking them what could she do to promote vitamin D. And um, she realized that um, she wasn't going to be able to convince the medical system uh, that they should endorse vitamin D because our medical system is based on treatment, uh, income and profits, not on prevention, and certainly not on, on supplements and, 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 and so on like that. So um, she um, eventually um, started um, uh, promoting the uh, evidence for vitamin D. And then when the blood, uh, the blood spot test became available, where you, you get a, a, a piece of paper, you draw, four drops of blood on a piece of paper, send it back. It's then set off to one or another uh, lab where they then um, uh, determine the vitamin D and they use, um, uh, I think, hemocrypt to normalize the, the um, everybody's sample. So it's, it's a fairly accurate sample, in fact, uh, sampling approach. And I've had it compared with, with wet blood samples. It comes within uh, a very few percent. So once she can do that, then she can start enrolling people in, um, uh, these studies where she has them record how much vitamin D they're taking, uh, what else they're doing, how much time they spend in the sun, and, and then we'll look at the, get this blood spot test every six months. And then she, she's used that in a number of publications already, um, uh, one for breast cancer, one for, uh, for women, one for total cancer for women. Um, I think she's helped use that to help uh, she used that to show how um, 25 hydroxy vitamin D varies with, with vitamin D dose. And if you, if you go to the website and look at the curve that's been generated from several thousand participants, you see that uh, just because you're taking 1,000 or 5,000 IU per day is very little, uh, gives very little predictive power about what your 25 hydroxy vitamin D level is because of things like sun exposure, uh, body mass, um, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, she's also looking at diabetes now. Uh, she's, they've gone, um, they're now measuring, uh, they're now encouraging people to take omega-3 fatty acids and they can, they can measure that with the blood spot test uh, as well. They're also expanding the initiative to look at other things like magnesium and some other compounds. And they're, they're moving, starting to move more towards a, a general um, a well-being uh, study, um, uh, going beyond the vitamin D and, and omega-3 and calcium, et cetera, et cetera. And how many uh, people are involved in the grassroots? Uh, I don't know exactly, but I'm sure it's in the thousands. And uh, um, you said one thing that was a bit worrying, which was the intake of vitamin D and supplements, you know, 1,000, 5,000 IU or whatever. Uh, didn't seem to correlate very well with the blood levels. Uh, well, okay. There, there, if you look at the, the curve, there's a mean value. The mean value is a very smooth mean value that it, it's, not, it's a nonlinear effect. Um, that if you get to higher input, you, you're, you're, you don't keep getting a, a linear increase. That's because the destruction of vitamin D in the body uh, increases. Uh, the body is trying to, to control the vitamin D level. Uh, but you'll see there's a large spread at any intake with respect to the 25 hydroxy vitamin D. Now, 
that doesn't necessarily mean you want to take have your your vitamin D level measured uh, because the the cost of measurement is often much higher than the cost of of the supplement, and uh, there are very few downsides. So I think we generally recommend that people just take as high a dose as they can think that they can uh, get by with and not worry about the testing unless they really want to make sure that they're above a certain level. And in relation to infections, flu, colds, maybe COVID, um, has that large data set of a few thousand people uh, where we know their uh, vitamin D level in the blood, what has that shown us? Yeah, we, uh, we did a preprint. Okay, the, the grassroots health people and I were, were together on our first uh, review of, of um, whether vitamin D would protect against uh, COVID-19. And we had a preprint, which is still up on the preprint server. You can find it through scholar.google.com, uh, where we did uh, look at their data for influenza-like illnesses. And it did show that there was still a benefit uh, going up above 100 nanomoles per liter. It may not have been a significant benefit compared to above 30, uh, 75 nanomoles per liter, but it did show a, a, a beneficial trend. So basically, if you were at 50 nanomol per liter, um, more risk of having flu, and if you're at 100, um, less risk. Correct. Yeah, so, and it sounds, a lot of the research uh, seems to be moving towards uh, 100 nanomoles per liter being probably the optimal kind of midpoint anyway. Is that, would you agree with that? Yes, but there is a continental um, divide. Mm -hmm. It appears that in Europe and England, um, it's accepted that 20, uh, 50 nanomoles per liter is, is uh, just fine. Uh, the recommendations on fortification, recommendations on supplementation, even the fact that England is now offering uh, vitamin D for people to uh, elderly people to protect against COVID, they're only giving uh, 400 IU uh, per day uh, supplements. Uh, it's, it, I don't know what the, why the mindset over there is just just sticking with 15 animals per liter. In the United States, uh, there's much more interest in 75. Um, in, 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 I saw it when my alcoholic has pushed, uh, but Grassroots Health is, is pushing 100 animals per liter. And a lot of the research coming out, um, uh, for example, the, the, the Grassroots Health studies on pregnancy outcomes, on breast cancer, on overall total cancer, are showing get benefits above 100, even above 100, up to 150 nanomoles per liter on, on breast cancer. So, um, you know, I think um, uh, it's, it's just, well, it's hard to get the word out about the benefits of vitamin D because the medical system puts so much money into advertising that newspapers don't like to cover vitamin D stories. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the broadcast media don't. Uh, I think Facebook probably takes it down um, well strangely enough we don't really have the drug advertising in the uk that you have in the us but we certainly do have a, a massive sort of suppression of media information and i wonder i mean with vitamin c for example there's something so obvious which is all animals which is 99.9 percent .9 of all animals don't right. make vitamin c and they're going to keep their blood level between 60 and 70 micromoles per liter whatever happens so if they're very stressed, if they're exposed to a virus, they will always produce enough vitamin C to get the level up somewhere between 60 and 70 uh, you know, micromoles per liter. But for some reason, sort of set in stone is the idea that 50 is absolutely fine for humans. And uh, I wonder whether the, the sort of it relates to rickets, because we know that 400 IUs a day is certainly enough to stop the sort of bone problems. Is that true? Yes, yes. Um, well, when the Institute of Medicine released their report in 2010 in the United States, they only considered bone health. At that time, there were no randomized controlled trials on cancer or anything else. And even though we have 10 years more data now, they haven't reconvened to, to reevaluate the, the results. Um, so, um, um, we get stuck. You think yeah. as you're going to start looking at cancer and well, well, part of the problem is that um, there's a scientific problem here. 
that the clinical trials that have been conducted, especially the large scale ones, have generally been conducted based on the guidelines for pharmaceutical drugs. And there are two basic assumptions. One is that the only source of the agent is in the trial. The second is that there's a linear dose response relationship. Neither assumption is correct for vitamin D. We get vitamin D from the sun, from diet, from supplements, and there's a saturation effect. So uh, Robert Heaney, who worked closely with grassrootshealth.net, uh, published a paper in 2014 in which he outlined the guidelines for nutrient studies such as vitamin D. And the basic principle was you do not look at the dose so much as you look at the, the 25-hydroxyvitamin D level because it's, it's in all the blood. The, yeah. yeah, because the outcomes are related to the vitamin D level, not to the dose. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is you want to try to enroll people with low values. You want to look at the observational studies and find out what the relationship is between 25-hydroxyvitamin D outcome. You then want to supplement these people with enough vitamin D to raise them to the upper level uh, where they have a lot of benefit. You want to remeasure their 25-hydroxyvitamin D and you want to base the outcome on the, the, this sort of uh, analysis. Well, the, the, the vital study out of Harvard was only 2,000 IU per day uh, for 25,000 people for four and a half years. And as shown in the abstract in the New England Journal of Medicine, there is no effect for cancer or cardiovascular disease. However, if you open the, looked at, actually read the, the paper, you found that people with a BMI less than 25 kilograms per meter squared had a 25% reduction in, in all cancer incidents. Mm -hmm. And the African-Americans had a 25% that was just barely not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. But uh, the press conference, the press release, the press coverage, and so on did not discuss that. For the diabetes study, D2D out of Tufts, they had the same effect, finding, uh, although for certain groups like those uh, uh, males and older, over a certain age and not taking calcium, had a beneficial effect. They find this is going from pre diabetes to diabetes. Mm -hmm. They finally published a paper this last year, uh, a year after the original study, saying, Oh, if we looked at 25 hydroxyvitamin D, uh, there was a beneficial effect for those who had a higher 25 hydroxyvitamin D level. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's yeah, so unlike a drug where the drug is not coming in from your food or the sunlight or any other source and you just give a specific dose versus a placebo, the same does not apply to vitamin D. Uh, you know, A, because we do have sunlight exposure, we do have food uh, exposure. I'd like to talk about food as a source of vitamin D. Uh, and also we have variables, you know, such as being overweight and the color of your skin and all those kind of things. So. The, the proper study should be looking at people with low levels of vitamin D and then giving whatever is necessary to get them up to, for example, 100 nanomoles and looking at what the effect of that is. But that doesn't fit in with a sort of conventional drug model of doing research. Well, there's another difficulty is it, the people with low vitamin D levels are hard to encourage to be in the studies. So often mm -hmm. the people with darker skin mm -hmm. or, or uh, you know, just skeptical of being involved in studies. Mm -hmm. You said there were two major problems in the research of vitamin D, and that was one. What was the other one? Well, the nonlinear effect and, and the... Oh, the nonlinear effect, yeah. So yeah. Like, the, like the vital study, the, the mean 25 for vitamin D was um, around 80 nanomoles per liter. Mm -hmm. and that's way above the, the um, uh, 50 nanomoles per liter, which is where there's sort of a kink in the um, dose-response relationship. There was a much more rapid increase in adverse effects below that mm -hmm. than there is a, a decrease above that. Okay. Uh, now, you've, you've spoken about vitamin D3. Uh, there's also D2. Can you explain the difference? Okay. So vitamin D3 is the, what's made by animals. Uh, the, most of the vitamin D3 that's in supplements comes from sheep's wool lanolin that's been uh, UVB irradiated and purified. Um, D2, on the other hand, comes from fungi or yeast, which is also fungi, and again, it's UVB irradiated. Uh, D, in the United States, D2 is normally prescribed by physicians at 50,000 IU doses uh, because it's patented and it, it's been approved for, for, um, 
pharmacy use. But it's, D2 is not as effective as D3. It doesn't last in the, in the body as long. And it has not been shown to be as effective in uh, a number of trials. Um, it, it has, in some trials, it is shown to be effective, but it's just not quite as effective. It's a different compound, um, slightly different structure, and you wouldn't expect it to exactly have the same effect. So, is it like 10% uh, less effective or half as effective? Or? Well, in terms of all cause mortality rate, um, uh, D2, the trials as of 2016 showed that um, D2 actually was associated with increased mortality rate, whereas D3 was associated with reduced mortality rate. I mean, that's just one small example, but I, I, I mean, I have seen studies where, uh, where it has been effective, so. Mm -hmm. uh, but not, not vegans, vegans who don't have any animal products in, in their diet will want to, might want to take uh, D2. On the other hand, there are now D3 products from plants. They found some plants that actually produce a D3. I think they're in the nightshade family. Uh, it's a little more expensive, but it, they can find it if they want. And lichen, lichen seem to have D3. That seems to be... Okay, that's a, a combination of algae and fungi. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, uh, yes, that's where the reindeer get their, their vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. By the way, I noticed in um, the Colorado ICU study, they looked at, uh, at uh, patients' vitamin C and D levels. They found the vitamin C level, both were low, I mean, generally speaking, and they found the vitamin C level predicted uh, survival. Those with the lowest levels didn't survive. They didn't find, I mean, this is a very small study, it's just one group. They didn't find the vitamin D level predicted survival, but I, I want you to comment on that, but it, it did sound a little bit like what you were saying was, you know, in acute infection, when you're in an intensive care unit, you've also, you've got a cytokine storm going on, et cetera, et cetera. Vitamin D doesn't work, you know, in the way that a steroid might work or, you know, something very acute. Okay. Um, one of the things that vitamin D does is it helps um, reduce in, um, free radicals. It helps, I think, promote uh, glutathione. Mm -hmm. And um, if it has to uh, spend its energy doing that, uh, it's not as effective doing what else it can do. Mm -hmm. But that's why if vitamin C comes along, that can take over trying to get rid of the free radicals and, and boosting the glutathione. So um, they, they do complement each other. And, and um, the use would take vitamin C as well as vitamin D uh, to fight uh, infectious diseases. I mean, the intensive care units that I'm working with here in the UK are giving both vitamin D and vitamin C. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, standard. I don't think they're using K2 as such. Uh, but, you know, anyway, we're going in the right direction. Now, um, we've, yeah, we've probably got what you've got in the US, which is this extraordinary block uh, on the idea of taking vitamin D just recently. Uh, the government and uh, reports have been saying, do take vitamin D in the winter. Um, we don't know that it will have anything to do with COVID, but it's good for your bones. So they, they are actually telling us to take it now, uh, albeit a small amount like 400 IUs, but at least they're telling us to take it. Uh, yes, why, why is there this uh, terrible resistance? Do you think we don't have enough evidence yet, or is the evidence just simply being misunderstood or ignored, or is it just well, political and financial? A couple of years ago, I, I published a, a press release with Orthomolecular Medicine News Service called uh, How Big Pharma Uses the Disinformation Playbook to Put Down Vitamin D. Mm -hmm. um, because Big Pharma sees vitamin D as competition for income and profits. I mean, you get cancer, $100,000, get a heart attack, $100,000, whatever. It, it's big business. You take um, a vitamin D, uh, 10, 20, 30 pounds per year um, as little business. Mm -hmm. So um, what they, the, the, there are five planks of, of the disinformation playbook. One is you attack the leaders of the field. So uh, the New York Times ran a hit piece on Michael Hollick a couple of years ago saying he took money from the indoor tanning industry, from their vitamin D testing companies, and from, from other or, uh, supplement companies, and therefore he was tainted. Well, never mind if doctors take money from pharmaceutical companies, they're not tainted, of course not. The second thing they do is they, they publish papers, studies that show that the like vitamin D doesn't work. 
and this is all these clinical trials showing that no effect of vitamin D supplementation. Third thing they do is they, they fund uh, all sorts of organizations uh, that will, will help maintain, will help put down vitamin D. So they give a lot of grants to universities so that uh, drugs are taught. They give uh, a lot of money to advertising so that um, they don't publish stories on vitamin D. Um, they will uh, give a lot of money to hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then the fourth thing is they put their people in power. So if you look at their Food and Drug Administration in the United States, the National Institutes of Health, and the Centers for Disease Control, all the top political people come from uh, big pharma. Uh, in fact, um, they're, they're, I, I heard on good, uh, good authority that people in the Food and Drug Administration have been told that uh, just don't, don't mention vitamin D during the COVID era because we want vaccines and drugs. If you play nice, you'll get a good job in, in with big pharma when you retire from the Food and Drug Administration. Um, there's a fifth platform thing to do too, but it, it's, it's all very well calculated, just like big tobacco did, like the sugar industry did, does, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's an economic decision. And I think they're, they're afraid, even though vitamin D could have saved billions, if not trillions of dollars of, of, um, of uh, damage, uh, economic harm during the COVID era, the COVID pandemic, I think that big pharma sees it like that would be letting the camel's uh, nose under the tent. And then people say, oh, I feel much better during, I'm not getting cancer during this. I'm not getting other infections. Um, I'm not getting um, dental caries. I'm, I'm, um, my cholesterol is better. Uh, I, I don't get depressed. That they would then continue taking vitamin D later and, and uh, the, uh, you'd have less of a, uh, a need for medical services. Uh, we have exactly the same thing here. We just have a rotating door between the influential positions and the pharmaceutical industry. Our Very, chief, our chief medical officer, Sir Patrick Valence, or surveillance as I call him, uh, is, you know, comes straight out of GSK, uh, GlaxoSmithKline. But this has been going on for years. It's really uh, extraordinary that we don't have independent, you know, advisors. But if uh, if everything you're saying about vitamin D was actually recommended and was being done from the beginning of this pandemic, do you, would you care to ha hesitate uh, a guess or at least paint a scenario of how that might have played out? And perhaps you can even maybe there are some countries where they do take this seriously, or maybe it's just the you know UVB sunlight exposure, etc. I know that. The African equatorial countries were meant to be uh, devastated by this, but they haven't been. So what do you think would have happened if we took Well, well first of all, the case in Africa is that the, the mean population age is very low. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, I've seen a data from India that it's the young people who are more likely to get COVID-19, but it's the old people who are more likely to die. The young people, their immune system can still handle the infection and the disease, and it doesn't go haywire. But as people get older, their immune system degrades and they're not able to handle it so well. It goes haywire and they get all these cytokines, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the, um, like it's shown in the nursing homes uh, and these trials in, in, in Cordoba, Spain, giving people the high-dose vitamin D, um, 100,000, 200,000 IU, has greatly reduced the mortality rate. In the United States, I think that... Um, uh, and maybe maybe as much as 40% of the deaths are from nursing homes, maybe not quite that high. But uh, certainly, the, the, um, had they been given high-dose vitamin D, that would have greatly reduced the, 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 the mortality rate. And that would have um, uh, then greatly reduced the need to lock up people because you wouldn't have the specter of, of, of deaths hanging over. Then if they had gone to the institutions, the prisons, uh, the hospitals, the, the meatpacking outfits and said everybody here needs to take high dose vitamin D. In fact, I was just reading today from, um, from England that um, the, I think the, the doctors who were dying in England from treating people were the, uh, the BAME doctors, black, uh, Asian, and mixed uh, ethnicity doctors. Mm -hmm. 23 of them died. And then a couple of people wrote letters to all the BAME doctors they could find and said, Look, immediately take 100,000 or more IU of vitamin D3. And at that point, 
the deaths from the, these vain doctors stopped. Mm -hmm. this, this should be, you know, crumpeted from the rooftops mm -hmm. that, that, that you need to take vitamin D if you're dealing with COVID-19. Okay. So anyway, it would have been a greatly reduced uh, pandemic. It would have saved trillions of dollars and uh, it would have just been a much better situation. Yeah. So as we come to the end, we understand that uh, in the summer months, which don't really uh, kick off until we get into about April here in the UK, uh, we want to get outdoors, wear shorts, wear t-shirts, expose your skin and do that for, what should we say, at least 20 minutes, uh, probably up to an hour. And uh, even better when your shadow is shorter than the length of your body, um, supplement um, Bill takes 5,000 IUs a day. I take 3,000 IUs a day now. What do you do in the summer, Bill? You take less? Well, as you may know, that Mark Twain said the coldest uh, summer winter we ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, what happens is the Sacramento Valley draws in the moist air from the ocean through San Francisco through Golden Gate and just covers San Francisco with clouds and fog all summer. So we don't get much vitamin D here in the summer for being out of doors. So I take the same amount of vitamin D uh, all year round. Okay. So at least a thousand I use a day and, and Bill takes 5,000 and that's not dangerous. There's no danger with this at all. So that's interesting. Tell us about food, which food gives us vitamin D? Okay. As shown in a paper by Crow et al uh, from England in 2011, uh, meat eaters had 20 nanomoles per liter higher 25 hydroxy vitamin D than vegans. It turns out that meat has vitamin D not only as unprocessed vitamin D, but also as 25 hydroxy vitamin D. And this, this 25 hydroxy vitamin D is not included in the food frequency tables. So for many years, people overlooked the fact that meat is a good source of vitamin D. However, if you, if you look at um, going from the Arab countries to the Northern European countries, you see an increase in winter in 25 hydroxy vitamin D with latitude because of the cold water ocean fish and the meat uh, mm -hmm. and the solids. Uh, the, the, Arab, the Middle Eastern people have mainly a vegetarian diet because you historically you cannot store animal products very long in a hot environment. So with the, they, they cover up in clothes, they, they, they have vegetable products, they have very low 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels. So, well, uh, uh, oily fish versus white fish and eggs. Yeah, eggs have Milk. a little bit, but not much. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, you, it's 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 a wild salmon. Uh, farm salmon doesn't have as much vitamin D as wild salmon does. So it's herring, sardines, anchovies, wild salmon are examples of of uh, good cold water fish with high 20, uh, 25 and high omega three fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So would you say, broadly speaking, if it's high in omega-3, it's probably high in vitamin D2? Probably, yes. Or D3, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, that's been um, incredibly informative. You remain my go-to guy for vitamin D. The story, I'm sure, in relation to COVID will keep unfolding. Uh, I and I'm sure all my listeners are immensely grateful for 20 years of really focused uh, research and gathering the research, sharing the research, analyzing the research. And uh, I'm sure that you, uh, like I, often feel tremendously frustrated that we've got uh, the answer to prevent and reduce all these unnecessary diseases and deaths. Um, but I hope uh, in our lifetime, well, I know already what you've done has made an extraordinary difference to the people who are listening and can choose for themselves. Okay. And I hope in our lifetime, there will be a quantum leap and a paradigm shift in understanding that nutrition, um, vitamin D, vitamin C, and other such nutrients are absolute cornerstone for our health. So, Bill, thank you very, very much for your time, and I wish you a very good year ahead. I appreciate the work you do in promoting all these supplements and, and nutritional aspects. I want to make one um, more uh, comment here. Uh, it's actually Henry Lahore in Washington State who runs the vitamindwiki.com website. He's a retired Boeing engineer, aerospace engineer, who spends 10 to 12 hours a day sucking in all the vitamin D papers and information he can find, posting on his website, and making it available in any language through a, um, a translation service. 
So it's vitamdwiki.com run by Henry Lahore. And he's been doing this for maybe, maybe 10 years now. And also we have your own website, which is excellent, sunarc, www.sunarc.org. You may yes. also want to look up the Grassroots Health Initiative. Do you know their website? Yes, grassrootshealth.net. Yeah, so we've got grassrootshealth.net, vitamindwiki.com, and sunarc.org for those who would like to keep up to date with the unfolding story of right. vitamin D. Bill, thank you very much indeed. All the best. Thank you, and thanks for hosting me.